0: How can I really love my arm? I love my story, but I don't love my arm. Feel stuck with work? Press pause and listen in. Talk
1: Human to Me, a podcast for entrepreneurs with nothing about entrepreneurship. In our show, founders take a break and talk to us about their identity beyond their company. I'm Jeff Shaw, your host for today. In this episode, supported by The Abstract and Maori Audio. I talk with Tiffany Yu, the CEO and founder of DiverseAbility, but what she does is only part of who she is. How did losing her dad and acquiring disability in the same car accident affect her life? And what happened to her on a ski trip that shifted her perspective? Grab a seat and kick back while our guest reflects and reconnects. With the personal experiences and roots that created a foundation for their values, philosophies, and outlook on humans. We start each episode with the same question. What about humans strikes you the most?
0: I think what strikes me the most about humans is how unpredictable they can be. I think we have this saying, you know, that you can't really judge a book by its cover or, you know, you don't really know someone's whole story. But I think you can look at this a couple different ways. So one is you never actually know how someone's going to react. So I know I've definitely gone into conversations where I have, you know, play by play what I think is going to happen. And then I show up for that conversation and everything gets totally derailed. And then the other part is just as I've gotten to know more people and kind of see underneath their layers or some of their behind the scenes, how multidimensional and, and beautiful most people really are. I also think about this in terms of like labels, you know, I'll go around and tell people that I am an introvert. And I almost use that as an excuse for why I can't go to large functionings or functionings that have a lot of people attending or why I need to retreat or didn't stay out late at night for the social activities. And in a way, I wonder if because I put that label out there so quickly, I almost use it so that my behavior is more predictable. But there is a side of me that kind of is in awe of people who live a little bit more spontaneously and don't feed into taking those personality quizzes.
1: What has been your journey in this contrast and tug-of-war relationship between predictability or unpredictable moments, but then also trying to be in your lane to do the right thing?
0: Mm. I like what you said before about being in my lane, you know? And in a way, I think in this desire, based on, I think, personal experiences that I've had as a kid, And and as many of us do, we just want to be understood. And I think in this desire for understanding, I try to have predictable behaviors. But there is a side of me, maybe grass is always greener, that has this desire for spontaneity, just throwing everything out the window. But yeah, I think there is a part of me that tries not to be overplanned so that I can let space in to be a little bit more unpredictable.
1: Well, let's talk about your life's foundations and experiences. Where were you born and what was life like growing up?
0: I think this is is a seemingly simple question, but also somewhat complicated. So I was born in Washington, D.C. My parents were immigrants from Vietnam and Taiwan, and I was the youngest of four siblings. And to be honest, I don't really remember my childhood other than You know, a pretty traumatic experience that I went through when I was nine, where my dad who was driving, we were driving back home from, you know, dropping my mom off at the airport and he had lost control of the car. And as a result, he lost his life and I acquired a disability. So I have a severe nerve injury in my right arm. And to be honest, that happened when I was nine. I don't really remember much. I can't remember before. I can't remember after really some of the only pinnacle moments I remember were how my dad's temper could get so out of hand. Um, And I have this memory of being so afraid of not eating every single crumb out of the bowl, every single pellet of rice, because he could just beat it out of us. That's what I remember pre-nine years old. Post-nine, I really can't tell you anything, probably up until the moment I was maybe 17 or 18. I was talking to someone the other day about kind of this desire to create some sort of a dotted line in between who this nine-year-old girl was and the 30-year-old that I am now. And to be honest, I can't see a connection between those two. And I remember talking to a friend about this and he was like, does there need to be a dotted line? Can you be a totally different person as this child who is now this young woman? And is it okay to exist and not really know how those puzzle pieces came together? And that's actually a question that I guess I'm kind of noodling on right now. Because, you know, I think there was a period of time probably where that gap was where I just didn't really acknowledge this trauma that had happened And only within the last couple of years have I started to experience grief over that experience. And you can't put a time limit on grief. And I haven't quite put those pieces together. How can I be more okay existing in that in-between space? And how can I be okay and have other people understand that this isn't something that just goes away? You know, you don't lose your parent and acquire a disability in the same traumatic accident and just wash away those scars.
1: A lot of people that I know who've gone through something as traumatic as you have, there are gaps. And a lot of times, some people choose to not explore it. How do you know when you want to explore something And when you don't want to explore something.
0: Hmm. I think it really comes down to this feeling of psychological safety. You know, and if I look back at my story, I never spoke publicly about the car accident for about 12 years. Up until I was 21 was the first time that I had spoken publicly about the car accident. And I think at that point, funnily enough, I was a senior in college at the time And I had my full-time offer from the investment bank. And so maybe I was feeling a little bit of confidence, you know, like I feel great about myself. Maybe it's time to like let in or share a little bit of this vulnerability, this hard story that is part of my identity. That to me, I think was kind of the first turning point. And I think the second turning point probably happened over the last couple of years where one of the things I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, I spend a lot of my work reliving this childhood trauma. It it is very much the inspiration behind why I do what I do. And something I thought about was my story just didn't end in 1997. So how can I share new parts of this story to show how this has impacted me and I think what I realized, I, I guess I'll use a little bit of, of a visual, which is the latte with the foam on top. <laughs> so, post car accident, you know, I was only just willing to kind of like brush the foam. If I had to take this mandatory physical education class for many years after the car accident, getting that note written to say, hey, Tiffany's got a nerve injury in her arm. She may not be able to participate in all activities. That's kind of like the foam on top. Then, when I started sharing this story more publicly, Now I'm starting to sip the latte. And the thing is, I think once you have taken off the foam on top, you let more air get in. So there's more space for you to kind of explore other parts of your story. And I think once I had shared the big part, you know, like the meat of the latte, which is actually being public about this car accident, I more recently am now, you know, finishing off the cup which is what are other aspects of this car accident that I haven't really explored, whether it's my relationship with my dad, as you mentioned, or how relationships with my mom or my siblings have have manifested since then, how I love the work that I do and how much of it is rooted in lived experiences, but I really hate the physical manifestation of my physical disability and how it looks. Um, and you know this, within the last year, I got a splint and started doing physical therapy to, uh, to help with muscle atrophy and, and to help more deterioration on the arm. And I think going through that process has been very necessary for me and very hard and super uncomfortable. But it's also like, this is my body You know, I can't just talk about my story like it's some effervescent thing. It actually is happening in my physical body as well. And how do I honor that space? So I think as you've seen, you've kind of had this graduation of sorts of my story being like, oh, I have a funny arm or like, oh, I have a car accident. And that's the only thing. And then over the past, I guess, 10 years of doing disability advocacy work, kind of exploring like, how do we share our stories in ways that people understand our lived experiences? And now that that's out, now I'm like, okay, let me return to myself. Am I really taking care of myself, all aspects of myself, mental, emotional, physical?
1: So what do you feel are some things right now that you are actually still hesitant to explore that you just don't want to?
0: I do notice that I tend to have a little bit of negative self-talk around physical therapy and my relationship with it. In the past, I only did it when I thought it was convenient. I used work as an excuse for why I was too busy not to do it. And then every time I saw that it, quote, wasn't working, I would just stop and give up. And so actually coming into this year, I've been way more committed to at least Attempting to try and do my exercises every day. But I was talking to him about this, and he's like, Tiffany, it almost makes me not want to help you because you seem so resistant to it. And it made me think, how much am I stuck in my narrative that I want to live in this disempowering space? Which is, I have a split now, feel sorry for me. Or I have this traumatic experience, I'm a victim. It's funny because a lot of my work is like, how can we move away from these pity, victim, shame narratives? And I am really focused on doing that for other people, but I need to do that work on myself as well. Especially in this last year, having revisited kind of the physical manifestation of my nerve injury on my whole body. It's impacted my shoulder development. It's It impacts my posture, which ultimately impacts how I walk right so this thing that was just my right arm is now my whole body because I abandoned it for so long now I'm kind of going back and picking up the pieces so I think for me the scary part at least for now is how can I really love my arm I love my story but I don't love my arm and that is that is a real thing that I acknowledge
1: Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So, we don't do canned ad spots at Talk Human to Me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors we work with. I'm going to give Lala O'Penny a quick call, the co founder and creative director of The Abstract. Hello. Hey, Lala, this is Jeff. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What value does your company have that personally means a lot to you?
2: With the abstract, our practice is essentially healing and dealing, sharing and caring. Um, This personally means a lot to me because it demystifies mental health work and reminds me that we're all living through the same human condition together. Like none of us lives in a bubble. And in my own journey to healing, it's been a give and take, ebb and flow, rest and recovery, coping and resiliency. Um, it's definitely hard work, but I've learned that sometimes the most profound work I can do is, is to keep things simple, take some deep breaths, remember that I love and accept myself and my emotions as they are. There's enough organized chaos and disconnect that we deal with on a day to day. Healing and dealing, sharing and caring is not only important, it's revolutionary.
1: Thank you, Lala. Now back to the conversation. What are some moments in your daily life right now where you feel like the only thing you want to do is just resign to it?
0: Ha, huh, wow, that's a that's a heavy question. I mean, I haven't I don't think I've quite gotten there yet. I mean, I I will say there were probably some points last year where I was kind of exploring potential surgery, came across people who have had similar surgeries who have decided to amputate, and that to me, I guess, is the darkest that I got, maybe. I was dating someone, and I think just having a really great support network is super important, and I acknowledge that not all of us have that at certain points in time, I just remember after one of my doctor's appointments, I called this guy I was dating, and literally, I was just crying. I couldn't even get any words out. And I think for someone to be able to create that space for me or to let me have that space was such a beautiful, cathartic thing. I've been trying to be really cognizant about the validity of my emotions and feeling them to their fullest, but not letting them ruminate. So, Am I creating false narratives for myself of whatever this dark reality is that isn't really the truth? And to be honest, so after this doctor's appointment where, you know, I was just uncontrollably crying, I remember just posting something very real about it on Instagram and ended up getting 40 messages from people I'd never met before, some people I knew, calls and texts, just being like, Tiffany, I know it's a really hard time right now, but I just want you to know that I'm here, here's my phone number, wherever you can find your places of support, again, just letting other people give you that space. I feel like right now, I'm in a really great mind space. I feel really great about the work that I do, And I feel really great about how things are going and the relationships and even my own health and my commitment to my physical therapy. And to be honest, this is a place that I haven't been in a really long time. I honestly can't even remember the last time I really felt this good. And I acknowledge that I probably won't be here for a prolonged period of time. So... It's interesting that we're having this conversation and, you know, we're trying to kind of dig into the vulnerable aspects of this story. But I also just acknowledge like I've been in a dark place, but now in retrospect, I'm able to talk about what support systems I felt like I had. But to be honest, I'm sure when I was in it, I felt like I had no one, like no one can feel the things that I was feeling. And I just want to kind of create space for that for myself and for other people a couple days ago, I went skiing and I ended up having like a pretty gnarly fall and my ski came off and I was really struggling to put my ski back on. And someone came by and helped. And by the time I got down to the bottom of the run, I was like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to go skiing anymore. And then I went up the lift, but I realized to get to back to where I started, I would have to ski another run. And I was just like, oh shit. You know, I, 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 I came up this lift knowing that I was just done. But then in my mind, I'm just like, no one can ski this for me. So I'm just going to have to figure out some way to get back up. No one can have your experience for you. People can try and empathize or sympathize as much. But it's you and really your own mental resilience that are going to get out of it. And knowing that there are people kind of like cheering for you outside of that dark place, like just right as you open the door, that's helpful. But it's really it really is so grounded in you and doing the work to get out.
1: You've been doing a lot of work in your personal life. I want to go back and think about the relationships that you've had in your life, um, especially with your siblings and with your with your mother.
0: I think I think you asked me a question earlier about kind of what are the areas that I'm still scared to uncover. And to be honest, that's it. I just became an aunt. So my sister had a child in January. And I remember I had a lot of kind of competing demands the day that my niece was born, which is I had a paper due and I had some other things I needed to get back to. And I remember knowing that the baby was going to come and I wasn't going to be there Because that's just how my siblings and my family kind of are. (laughs) I know I would see my niece when I saw her. But something just sparked in my mind when I got the note from my sister saying that she was going into the emergency room or going to the hospital. Where it was like, I need to throw whatever existing shadows or spider webs are in this closet out the window. And I just need to go. And so I like I took a red eye, came straight off the red eye into a car with my family so we could all drive to see my sister at the hospital, held this one day old baby Zoe Grace for maybe 30 seconds (laughs) and then went home. And my brothers asked me if I wanted to watch Ghostbusters and I had already seen the film and I was super tired coming off this red eye. But instead, I just sat and I watched this film with them. And then I went to bed. And the first thing in the morning, I went back. I hopped on to a flight to go back to San Francisco. I think something like that happening really put things into priority for me, which was who gives a shit if I turn in this paper late? Like there is a child coming out of my sister right now. Like, are you seriously going to tell yourself that writing a paper is more important than that? Or whatever work deadlines you come up for yourself. So honestly, for me, that was a pretty unpredictable thing that I did. Because Predictable Tiffany, I see my brothers three times a year. And have pretty much been on that cadence for the past 10 years or so. And I think that was my first attempt to try Because even when I do go home to see my brothers, they are doing their thing and I'm doing my thing. And for the first time, we all decided to watch this movie together, which sounds like a kind of funny thing. But for those who aren't aware, you know, one of my brothers and my sister were in the car accident with me. But we as a family have actually never really talked about the car accident. I think part of it is this could be like an Asian cultural thing. I'm not quite sure. So healing to me had to happen in a very different way. And I think I'm starting to become more empathetic to all the different ways that people heal, right? Coming back again to this unpredictability, right? And, you know, I used to be really critical of my mom and how she treated me versus my siblings. I used to make comments to my brother about things that he should do in order to kind of move on from this accident that we were both in. And I realized if they're not harming anyone or themselves, then who am I to criticize how they heal? I think I know that there's a part of me that really wants to mend my relationship with my mother before it's too late. When I show up, though, a different person just comes out. And I call it my nine-year-old resentful self who didn't really understand what had just happened. And, and interestingly enough, I think part of the reason why I have been thinking about this very loose dotted line between this nine-year-old girl and this 30-year-old woman is My friends are a little older and they have nine or 10-year-old girls. And when I meet their daughters and I'm like hanging out with them, I just think that young girl that I'm talking to right now was me. And I can't believe that something like that happened to me slash her, this young girl who's standing in front of me.
1: Let's take a break. Also, a quick word about one of our supporters. So, we don't do canned ad spots that talk human to me. We want to get to know the humans behind the sponsors that we work with. I'm going to give Mauricio Escamilla a quick call, the founder and executive creator of Maori Audio, a full service audio, sound design, and music production studio based in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. Hey Jeff. Hey Mauricio. So I wanted our listeners to get to know you and your company a bit better. What core value of Maori Audio personally means a lot to you? Maori Audio is the culmination of my love for music, sound, and expressive production. Drawn to music and sound at a young age, I decided to focus on the science of it all, how to capture and truly make sound as emotive and powerful as it needs to be in order to fully move and impact the viewer and listener. A core value would be working with those whose voice needs to be amplified. I've had the pleasure of working with many independent artists, producers, and filmmakers to make their production as strong as it can be. Amplifying the voice of the voiceless, specifically marginalized people, is a big part of my work. And it brings me joy and fulfillment as a person of color from immigrant parents to be able to do that. Now, back to the conversation. In your predictable moments, you're content, you're comfortable, you're confident. You describe it in a way where in a lot of these predictable situations, you're like, why can't I be more unpredictable in this moment? I want to have that kind of spontaneity that happens. And then the transformation that I'm hearing in these unpredictable moments is that you feel an emotion of fear. You mentioned the word resentment from that point in those unpredictable moments is that you have almost a regenerated or a rekindled spirit to say, I need to face this. Or there's a continued hesitation, but you recognize it. So something is happening. So of those two, (laughs) which would you rather be in?
0: Yeah, I mean, I it's actually interesting you described it as like boredom or something. And because I, I actually tend to use that word a lot. I think that I, I wonder if part of it is driven by ambition. I wonder if there's a personal version of ambition, which is how can I continue to stretch the limits of who I am? Something really sparked in me, which is one of my themes for this year is fun. When I think about playfulness, there is something a bit unpredictable about play, right? Even if you think about games, you don't know which card you're going to draw or what the dice is going to roll, you know? And to be honest, part of the reason why fun is the theme for me this year is I I really do want to tap into this nine-year-old girl. And I think part of the reason why there is this gap is because... After the accident, I just felt like I grew up or 18. It's time to grow up. And I remember I didn't cry at my dad's funeral. I can't remember, you know, growing up and crying. And now as a 30-year-old woman, it's happening a lot. And I think part of it is like nine-year-old girls trying to get out and she's not quite sure how she manifests now in woman form.
1: You talked about how your theme this year is fun. And you related that to unpredictability.
0: Someone asked me where I saw myself in five years. To be honest, I feel like where I am right now is exactly where I envision myself being in five years. I'm like living the life I've always dreamed of. And what an incredible place to be in that spot, right? But I said, in five years, I just want to fill my space, like I don't think that I realize how powerful I am. And I have always made myself to feel small. I want to take up my physical space. You know, like I realize in my intersectional identities, like I have this confidence and this privilege that, that I have grown or built over the last couple of years doing this work. And now it's time to just own it and, and fill that.
1: What was the personal obstacle in your mind?
0: There's a quiz (laughs) that tells you where your biggest areas of self-sabotage are. So my two biggest areas are what are called hyperachiever and pleaser. So what they mean is that, you know, I'll do these favors for people because I seek reward or approval from them. And the hyperachiever is I go out and I'm an overachiever because I seek validation or recognition of the things that I've achieved. And if you think about them, both of them are contingent on other people. So my view of my own self-worth is dependent on other people. And my view of how much I love myself and how much I want to take care of myself is dependent on other people. And part of my work is really around what does self-love really look like when I am not looking at other places for validation? And I'm really trying to hone in on that. You know, and I think that that's where a lot of my more recent growth has come from, which is now that I'm aware that these are the things that cause my biggest areas of self-sabotage, how can I kind of re reroute maybe that attention to what are the things that will nourish and replenish me? And, and maybe they're rested in having a conversation with someone else, or maybe it's some alone time, but am I having integrity with my word where I'm not expecting something or some kind of reaction? And so for me now, how I approach conversations or relationships is as long as I'm saying my truth, if I don't get the reaction I was looking for, that's okay because I did that for myself.
1: Every single year, you're having these personal transformations in your life. What are what are some of the next steps that you see in your own physical manifestation, your relationships, the ownership and confidence in doing things for yourself? What does the next couple steps look like?
0: I think a big challenge is... Just like checking myself, like taking a beat, and I think because I do work in the advocacy activism space, it can be very easy to kind of sit in a place of rage and anger, and you know sometimes that becomes fuel for action, which can be really empowering. But it can also, but it can also be really disempowering. So, you know, if someone did something that i felt like i wanted some agency in can i take a beat before reacting and i've been thinking a lot about this idea of like calm and on the one hand i know that it's just in my nature to be a super calm person i love being really expressive i get really excited when i see someone or you know hear some news And then when I hear bad news, you know, you'll definitely hear about it too, but in a different way. But it's just like, how can I kind of slow or manage those reactions a little bit better so that I understand the unpredictability of how people are reacting? You know, maybe they didn't realize in the disability space, like sometimes people will use words that we don't really use anymore. You know, not everyone has had the same experiences that I've had. How can I meet them where they are? Or how can I understand that maybe they'll never have the experiences that I have? And that's totally okay, too. You're catching me at a really good place where I feel like I know that I want to take up and fill my space. But to be honest, I'm not quite sure what that's gonna look like. And I don't wanna, I also don't wanna make it sound like this is gonna be super easy peasy. I think it's gonna be a journey. And I think that the first part of it was taking a step back and saying, there is a part of my body that I really have neglected. So how can I like reattach and like really look at my arm and love it? My other theme is self love. And, I came out of a relationship a couple months ago, but I think I just knew we were never going to be where I wanted us to be. And so now, now I feel like I'm backtracking a little to be like, okay, what does it look like? Like, what does Tiffany, who's not in this relationship look like? And how can I fall in love with that person? I think in order to get to a point where I feel like I can go to some of those relationships and say, hey, I really messed up, you know, the past two decades and I want to rebuild, Like that's going to take a lot of work. And I know that you and I had a conversation recently about someone that I recently reconnected with who I know in a dark phase of having just recently moved to San Francisco a couple years ago, I, I wasn't very nice to a lot of people. And I think I led with anger. And as a result, I shut some people out. And I, again, integrity with my word, I realized that I was revisiting this relationship that had fallen apart a little bit and Felt confident enough in myself to go revisit that relationship, but familial ones Not yet. I mean, I think that the movie thing and the flying home for the baby were were huge steps for me to be honest my sister is one of the biggest supporters of my work and It wasn't until this last year where I think she had posted something on Facebook around my birthday, like, here's to my incredible baby sister who's, like, accomplished so much that I realized I looked at the timeline of, like, all the things that she had shared over the years. It was kind of like I wasn't listening. It was like the digital version of not listening, you know? And it's like, here's this huge cheerleader who we are related by blood that because of maybe not acknowledging all of the dark parts of this trauma that is actually shared among all of us. I think now that there is a new addition to our family, things will be different. You know, it's like for the sake of our niece, this is what we need to do.
1: So talking with our guest, I noticed certain emotions come up, not just in them, but also in other founders. This got me curious about the psychology and science behind that. I called up Dr. Shira Foy, who is a doctorate of science specializing in entrepreneurship and technology commercialization. She's currently doing research on how entrepreneurs perceive and engage with the society around them. You can find more information about this at ShiraFoy.com, which is S-H-I-R-A-H-F-O-Y.com. One of her specialties is in founders identities and how they interpret and draw on social and cultural themes and experiences. So she can definitely drop some knowledge on us. Hello? Hey, Shira, this is Jeff. I got a question for you. As I talk with founders, one of the questions that crosses my mind is why it's so hard to get present to the current moment. And instead, I find founders constantly dwelling in the past or constantly thinking about the future. I'd love to get your insight into that.
2: Great question, Jeff. First, let's break this down a little bit uh, so that we're all on the same page about what this question is really asking. What do we mean when we say get present? It doesn't necessarily mean forget everything about who you are or the context of the event that you're in. It's not a brain wipe. Uh, when we talk about being present, we mean that we're fully engaged mind, body, spirit, emotions, and we're free from the weight or burdens of our past and free from the expectations of our future. There's many mechanisms that may be involved in how difficult we find it to stay present without dwelling in the past or the future. But today I wanna talk about this from an identity perspective. And by that I mean how the past, present and future are related to this sense of self that we have. So why do the past and future affect us so much in the present? One of the reasons is because of the way our identities are formed. We rely on experiences to provide us with raw material for the content of our identities. And this can include family heritage, stories, trauma, at the level of entire communities that could be ravaged by war or by that car accident you were in as a child. It might also include memories and experiences of inspiration, passion feeling at home in a certain place or activity, or group of people, all of these past experiences, both positive and negative, are potential sources of what we call identity content. Now, it seems like the vast majority of people are not 100% satisfied with their past. So it's fortunate that past experiences are not the only source of deriving a sense of self. Our aspirations for the future can also inform our identities. We can metaphorically try on different hats or different roles and project onto ourselves what it would be like to be that kind of person before fully committing to an identity. So while the past and the future are key sources of content to inform who we are in the present, it's a bit of a conundrum that being present actually requires us to temporarily distance ourselves from the past and the future. I think Temporarily detaching, in a sense, from the past can be easier for some, but also harder for others. If you've been through a lot of trauma, then detaching from the past might lift a heavy burden. But if your past accomplishments are what you've built your identity on, it can be really hard. And you might feel like you were walking in the shallow sea and then stepped off a sandbar and now you suddenly find yourself floundering without any solid ground to stand on. In the same way, if we have this view of ourselves that we'll only be good enough once we raise a certain amount of capital for our venture or pass through any other sort of rites of passage we might construct for ourselves, and we're banking all our present confidence on that future expectation, it's going to be hard to detach from that future and just be present. So, in order to get present and let the person we are today in the here and now be fully present, we might need to step back set aside that temptation to hold tightly to the past or the future. We have to be okay with and accept, even for just a few minutes, who we are today. We're a work in progress. Being present requires certain sense of security, a sense of being okay and being enough without relying on your past or your intended future to define you. And then one more thing, being present also means that we are not self-aware, in the sense that we're not standing outside of ourselves and monitoring how we look to others and sticking to socially accepted norms. If we're present, we're not taking that third-person perspective, but rather we're looking through our own eyes. And that can be really, really difficult to let go of that need to self-monitor and instead operate from the perspective of looking through our own two eyes. So, in this sense, we might connect being present with authenticity.
1: Thank you, Dr. Foy. Thank you for the awesome conversation. I hope what we've talked about has sparked some new thoughts for our listeners to reflect on. We end each episode with this question Ultimately, what's the point of? all of this
0: how can we realize how much potential we actually have i don't think you realize how beautiful you really are how can i marry what the world sees how can i just love myself so unconditionally and show that to the rest of the world or maybe the rest of the world already sees it how can i be there
1: find fully curated experiences of all of our episodes at talkhumantome.com backslash episodes. Also, take a look at the work and causes our guests and visiting experts deeply care about at talkhumantome.com backslash discover. We like working with sponsors that fundamentally care about helping people reflect and reconnect. Our sponsors are offering special treats to our fans directly in the show notes or at talkhumantome.com sponsors. The show takes a dedicated squad. Shoutouts to designer Lala O'Penny for our show's artwork and to audio engineer Mauricio Escamilla for his audio wizardry. Please check out their companies and creations in the show notes or at talkhuman2me.com backslash squad. And finally, infinite love to our advisors, mentors, friends, and family. You are make our existence and our ability to keep going possible. Be well, be curious, practice empathy, and stay human.